Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be discussing Season 5, Episode 1, Sympathy for the Devil, written by Eric Kripke and directed by Robert Singer. And I'm going to start this episode by saying that I'm on day two of a migraine, and if I had any option to record this any other night this week, I would opt for that, but I don't, because inconvenient family things pop up spur of the moment and drag you away from real life. So this is the only night I have this week to record, so... Apologies if it's on the short side, but after last week, it's probably good that it'll be on the short side. I hope I don't leave anything important out just because brain hurty. That said, welcome to season five. We pick up exactly where we left off with Sam having, oopsie, released Lucifer from hell and all the baggage that's going to go along with that. Dean was tortured into unwittingly breaking the first seal And Sam was manipulated and deceived into willingly breaking the last seal. And Chuck has decided to keep playing with them, dragging out his apocalypse for fun and profit, I guess. This is where it starts becoming really clear to me as a viewer when I rewatch this entire series that this is where Kripke truly embodied the persona of Chuck (laughs) in the narrative. That was his self-insert character as the creator, as the teller of the story. And season five, to me, I know a lot of people think it's a great season and one of the best of the series. Like, there was recently a thing that went around on social media, like, if you can't pick for season four or five, what would be your top two seasons? And I'm like, well, neither four nor five would be my top two seasons. And four ranks higher than five, like by a lot. <laughs> but to me, it's like, especially post the big reveal in season 14 of Chuck as author and how he manipulates his own story, including his own self-insert character, It's like once you see behind that curtain, it sort of ruins season five a little bit for me. Not that I particularly enjoyed it even the first time I watched it. It has some issues that we'll talk about as we go along. It's not the perfection of season four. It makes some big missteps. And one of them, I mean, I don't think it's actually a misstep, but it retcons so much and just asks viewers to believe and go along with it. I don't think seasons one through five come off as the perfect narrative arc. They're just flawed in ways that I think a lot of people have rose-tinted glasses for. And we'll talk about that as we go through the season as well, including in today's episode. But there is a lot to get through in this episode. Unlike in a season finale, a season premiere is just setting things up for the future. Who saved the boys and beamed them onto that plane? Who resurrected Cass just in time to save them from Zachariah? And what are they supposed to do now? We meet Becky, Chuck's ultimate fangirl and a not very flattering audience representative. A lot of people cringe at Becky as the representation of us, the fandom. Uh, Thank God she got redeemed at least eventually in a very long time from now. We meet Nick, sad sack manipulated into being Lucifer's temporary vessel while he worked on Sam. And Meg and Zachariah are back causing problems on behalf of Hell and Heaven, respectively. Chuck's still playing the sad sack, and Bobby apparently doesn't have an anti-possession tattoo, much to everyone's regret. This also begins Cass's long fall toward humanity. I mean, he started that journey last season, but... Now it's being kind of forced upon him, actively cut off from heaven, despite having been brought back after his smiting. And Misha's a series regular now, so they clearly had plans for Cass. Plus, I personally get to complain about geography and driving distances, which is always fun. I think this one's best discussed as we go through the episode, not just because there's a lot of details that we need to have pointed out, but also because brain hurty. (laughs) and hopefully we can get through it in relatively short order. Retcons ahoy, because this is where Kripke starts having to tap dance faster and faster to keep up with his own great ideas. And I mean that in the most self-congratulatory patting himself on the back, 
fist pumping of success over his own writing choices. So (laughs) this is why I have not watched any other Eric Kripke led shows. Anyway, there's a very few bonus things for this episode, aside from the super wiki and my tag. There's a few posts for folks to enjoy and a link to the article from Spoiler TV containing a page of the script. It's the only page of this script we have, and we don't really have a lot from early season five, so I'll take whatever we can get. But there's some other interesting stuff in that article as well for folks who are interested in reading it. And with that, Let's get to the Road So Far segment and be thunderstruck because that is the musical selection we get to enjoy. We begin by going all the way back to the end of season three where Dean was chained up in hell, then to the very beginning of season four where Dean clawed his way out of his grave in the Tunguska event. Sam and Dean are reunited when Dean's been resurrected and they kill a lot of monsters and We get a recap of the high points of season four, Anna telling us about Lilith trying to break the 66 seals to free Lucifer, little flashes to remind us about Sam's demon powers, Castiel being part of the gang. We get very few pauses in the flashes of action, but the few we do get feel important. And one of them is Cass talking about the fact that he was in a vessel from 4-1 and that the man was very devout and prayed for this. Since we know that Jimmy is sadly dead now, after Cass got blowed up at the end of the last episode. We're reminded the supernatural novels are a thing that exist in their universe, penned by Prophet of the Lord Chuck Shirley, who we all know is actually God, so that's how I'm going to talk about him. We are reminded that Zachariah is, quote, Castiel's superior, and I'd like to pause to say that Zachariah is in no ways superior to Castiel, except maybe in douchebaggery. We're reminded of the trick of the entire last season, that they actually wanted the apocalypse to happen, that they wanted Sam to break the final seal, that they planned all of this to happen exactly as it did, and it was too late to stop any of it. We watch Sam's eyes go black as he kills Lilith with his magical demon blood powers. Dean rushes in and kills Ruby. And then Sam apologizes as the portal opens and Lucifer pops out of hell. The screen whited out at the end of last season. And we come back from that whiteout now. Back in that chapel, Sam and Dean make a run for the door. Sam is horrified and mesmerized by the light, but Dean convinces him to run and the door slams in their faces and they seem trapped, doomed to be slaughtered by Lucifer on the spot, they think. They drop to their knees in the archangel magnified by at least a hundredfold power version of what Dean experienced when Cass tried to talk to him in Lazarus Rising and the sound effects and the sparkles and the flashing lights and They drop to their knees, covering their ears, trying to protect their vision from this intense light. When the screen whites out again, that's all gone. And they're on an airplane watching a cartoon about Yosemite Sam and hell, which is kind of how they feel right now. We all know with information we will gain over the next few episodes that Lucifer wants Sam as his vessel. Lucifer was trying to trap Sam there, make Sam say yes. You know what I mean? But he couldn't because even though the door was barricaded against them, something else pulled them out of that room and said, ah, yeah, not not yet. We got a little bit more story to get through before we get there. That is a God level power. I mean, who else could have foiled the Lucifer's intent to claim his vessel on the spot there? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think Chuck was just like, no, no, these guys are too interesting. I'm going to I'm going to make them enjoy this a little bit. Because, of course, Chuck thinks his story is enjoyable. (laughs) It is to him. I mean, that does kind of explain Becky as Chuck's choice to convey information to Sam and Dean, right? That she was just as off kilter about reality versus fiction versus the story as Chuck is. Having deluded himself into thinking his story is just so enjoyable. And I know that's not something we'll get firsthand knowledge of for a good number of seasons to come. 
But once you know it, it's really hard to not know it on a rewatch. But Sam and Dean have materialized on this airplane and they're like still cowering like they were protecting their hearing and their vision from the light of Lucifer. They realize, wait a second, we're not dead. What's going on here? And apparently nobody else on this airplane noticed them appearing. They're just part of the flight now. The pilot comes over the radio and announces to the entire plane that they're on their initial descent into Baltimore, flying over Ilchester and then Ellicott City. Okay, I just got to say, as airplanes fly, it would fly over Ellicott City, then Ilchester, and then to BWI. That's how the flight path goes. I've flown in there so many times. Dude, I live, that's the closest airport to my house. (laughs) It's like 25 miles from me. Anyway, that would also be the final descent into Baltimore. That's like two minutes from landing. It's six miles from Ilchester to BWI in the air. That has always just made me laugh and I can't like feel distressed by it. Because it's like, dude, was this pilot flying in circles? So (laughs) that's my little bit of, man, somebody should have like pulled up a Google map. You know what I mean? And the pilot's saying, so if you'd like to stretch your legs, now would be a good time. And I'm like, what? You're probably touching down in two minutes. (laughs) You don't stretch your legs during an initial descent to a runway. But of course, he's flying over the convent in Ilchester and a giant light blows out of the ground directly in front of the plane. We know that's Lucifer escaping his cage. The pilot steers the plane really hard to not run through this beam of light. Poor Dean, who hates airplanes, is stuck in a window seat as the emergency oxygen masks drop down from the ceiling And he's looking out the window at this light in horror, knowing that it is Satan. (laughs) That must have been way worse a flight for him than the Specky the Wonder Demon from back in season one. But we don't get any more of Dean's reaction or him shakily leaving the airport. We just get them in either a rental car or a stolen car, driving to the one place they know where something happened last. Chuck's. And let me just say, I don't know where Kripke's Hollow, Ohio is. It could be anywhere in Ohio, in theory, because it's fake and made up and it's just to honor Kripke. I'm going to assume it's supposed to be representative of Kripke's hometown, since he is from Ohio. And of course, that's where Kripke's fictional alter ego would live in Kripke's Hollow. But regardless, it's probably an eight or nine hour drive from Baltimore to wherever in Ohio they're going. Sam turns on the radio in the car and it's a news report citing Governor O'Malley telling them that St. Mary's convent was not a target for terrorism or anything like that. So they don't know what exactly happened there. So this is clearly a national news event. And yes, Governor O'Malley was actually our governor at the time. And as they scan through the different radio stations looking for something a little more lighthearted, every station is playing news of disaster after disaster around the world. An outbreak of swine flu, a hurricane in Galveston, an attack on a North Korean nuclear site, earthquakes, you name it, there's a natural disaster or man-made disaster for you happening around the world somewhere. Welcome to the apocalypse. They turn off the radio and Sam attempts to warm himself up to apologizing for everything that's happened. He realizes all of this is his fault in some way. He's the one who let Lucifer out and it's all falling apart because of him. And he's trying to apologize to Dean and Dean's just like, stop, I get it. It's okay. Let's just figure out what we're going to do next. We're going to lie low and figure out how to deal with any of this. First problem, how did they get on that airplane? Sam suggests it could have been angels beaming them out of harm's way, but I think Dean is skeptical about that option because last he heard, the angels wanted all this to happen, and even if the angels still have a mission for him, he kind of screwed them over trying to stop Sam. So I think Dean is right here. Don't trust angels, but he does trust Cass. He says their first mission is finding Cass. They drive through the night to Chuck's where we open on a scene of absolute destruction. Everything's busted up in his house. 
Route 666, a copy of the novel, is open face down on a table. There's blood spatter everywhere. Everything's broken and thrown around. Sam and Dean have let themselves in and are exploring this devastation. When out of nowhere, Chuck sneaks up and whacks Sam in the head with a plunger. It's funny when you know it's Chuck. It's like, what kind of weapon is that, Chuck? You should have a better weapon than that. But honestly, knowing that it's God wielding the plunger and whacking Sam on the head with it, like, you did this, I'm going to take at least one whack with the plunger on you. Least you deserve, Sam. And again, behind Sam is a poster for Route 666. So it's like they're telling us, yeah, the devil's out now in the most supernatural Chuck way they could. Chuck seems surprised to see them. He's surprised that Sam is alive and okay. And it's like, well, knowing that it was you that beamed them up onto the plane, you're a really good actor, Chuck. And we know he is. Chuck goes on, I think, for Dean's benefit, because this is probably stuff that Sam didn't know since it was happening to him and he couldn't observe what was happening to him very well. But also for Dean's benefit, because Dean didn't see any of this and Chuck's stirring up shit. Because if Dean never heard any of this, he probably wouldn't have felt so negatively towards Sam. You know what I mean? This is the monster that he was afraid Sam would become. And Chuck is describing Sam becoming it. He goes on to say, you were like full on Vader. Your body temperature was 150. Your heart rate was 200. 150 body temperature might be a bit of hyperbole because my God, Sam would have cooked. (laughs) unless the magic was protecting him. I don't know. Either way, it's disturbing information. And his eyes went black. So was Sam full on demon at that point? Is he better now? What is actually happening with Sam? Dean asks where Cass is and Chuck's like, he's dead or gone. The archangel came and smote him. Dean's like, oh, well, maybe he just made a run for it and like, Chuck's like, no, he exploded like a water balloon filled with chunky soup. Sam points out something in his hair, and Chuck pulls a tooth out of his hair, presumably one of Cass's teeth, Jimmy Novak's teeth. And we know from much later canon that a soul cannot survive the complete disintegration of the vessel. Cass may have come back, but I don't think that Jimmy did at this point because we know later that Cass tells Claire that Jimmy died when he was disintegrated by an archangel. That's what just happened to him. I don't think Jimmy comes back after this. I know people have argued that because of something he says in you know his craving for meat that he blames on Jimmy later this season. I think that was a lie. I think Cass just didn't want to acknowledge his own humanity creep. And I'll explain all that when we get there. But I'm going to talk about it as if Jimmy is no longer in his vessel, because that is how I have always personally seen it. If you want to believe that Jimmy is still in there until Cass gets the exact same water balloon chunky soup treatment at the end of the season, for whatever arbitrary reason you choose to believe that this identical incident wouldn't have killed him... I'm going to side-eye that, but if that's a deeply held opinion, I'm not going to debate you. I'm just going to talk about how I see it. Jimmy's gone. This is the first time that Cass is now in a vessel of his own, and it changes a lot for him. I think it's very important to the arc he's embarking on of being cut off from heaven, of losing his angelic powers slowly as they seem to drain away throughout the season with no explanation given other than he's just been cut off from heaven. We'll see something similar in season 10 when we meet the Grigori angels who have to consume human souls in order to gain any slice of heaven however they can since they've been cut off. But the way Cass loses his power is distinctly different. It's more human. It's like when he got his own body that didn't already have a soul in it. Something fundamental changed about him. I don't know that Chuck was anticipating that. Yet he allowed it to happen. He resurrected Cass and put him in this position just to see what would happen. Or because he thought it was fun or interesting or 
because of Dean's reactions in this next scene. Let's go through that. Dean calls Cass a stupid bastard. And Sam's like, what? He was just trying to help us. And Dean's like, exactly. That's the problem. Trying to help us makes you a stupid bastard. And if only he hadn't, he'd still be alive. And as they're having this argument, Chuck's like, oh no, they're coming. Angels and Zachariah and two minion angels appear. Zachariah being who he is, he's completely smug. Like, we've gotten past this obstacle that we had. Now we're all on the same page. We all have the same agenda. You want Lucifer dead? We want Lucifer dead. Time to come do your portion of the program. You promised you would. Dean is not having it. He's pissed. He's like, yeah, you guys started Judgment Day. Zachariah's like, we didn't start anything. We just let it happen. It was all Sammy. You know, you even had a chance to stop him and you failed to stop him. As Zachariah is telling them, you know, like it or not, this is where we are now here in the apocalypse. He runs a finger through Cass's blood smeared on a table leg, reminding Dean, yep, your buddy's dead. Dean is not having it. Cram it with walnuts, ugly. He doesn't trust Zachariah and he doesn't have any intention to work with him. He was manipulated and misled all last year. He's not going through that again. And Zachariah's like, Lucifer is more powerful than you can even imagine. We need to strike hard and fast right now before he finds his vessel. Because his vessel was snatched out from under his nose, but they don't know that yet. They're just shocked to hear that Lucifer needs a vessel. Yeah, he's an angel. Them's the rules. Dean's like, I don't want jack squat from you. I'm not working with you. I'm not trusting you at all. And Zachariah's like, you listen to me, boy. You're going to rebel like Lucifer did. And then he notices Dean's hand is dripping blood. And then Dean proves that they were there for at least a few minutes before we cut in on them exploring Chuck's because he'd prepared an angel banishing sigil on the back of a sliding door. He reaches around, pulls the door, and smashes his hand on the sigil, activating it and banishing Zachariah and his little minions. He'd half expected angels to show up since the last time he was there and Archangel was getting ready to smite Cass. And after they're gone, Dean even says it. I learned that from my friend Cass, you son of a bitch. So Cass has gone from being just another douchebag angel to being his friend. Because when everything was on the line and it all counted, Cass literally died trying to help him. That earns friendship. But Chuck also heard that declaration. He knows that Dean considers Cass a friend, and Dean is now completely resisting the plan laid forth by heaven and doing it in Cass's name. That's a problem for Chuck if he wants Dean's compliance at any point in this season. He's going to have to compromise on his story details just a little bit. Just like Kripke has to compromise on his story details throughout the season to make the plot function. Or it wouldn't. Sam finds Dean in their crappy motel of the week and tosses him a hex bag. Apparently it will protect them against demons, angels, anything finding them. Which is a good thing to have. Dean's like, how'd you get this? Sam's like, I made it. Dean pries more. He learned how to do it from Ruby. And of course, Dean does not want to hear Ruby's name, even though he killed her. Just a reminder of what she did to Sam is still a raw wound for him. Dean asks how he's doing. Is he jonesing for another hit of demon blood? And Sam's like, uh, no, I'm actually completely fine. I think whoever put us on that plane cleaned him up completely. He's got no fever, no shakes, no hallucinations, nothing. Sam then attempts for the second time to apologize to Dean. And Dean turns his back and rolls his eyes like, no, Sam, shut up. We don't need to talk about this. It's okay. I get it. But Sam presses on. He's like, sorry is just really not enough to cover this. What do I ever even do or say to make this right? And then Dean gets angry. He's like, then why do you keep bringing it up? Dean does not have the mental capacity to handle this sort of issue between them. He's like, we're just going to treat this like any other hunt. We made a mess. We're going to clean it up. That's what we do. 
even though Dean seems pretty uncomfy about having to hunt the devil. That's the furthest out of their pay grade they've ever been asked to fix a problem. Meanwhile, in Pike Creek, Delaware, we are introduced to Nick. Lucifer is tormenting this poor guy, freaking him out with visions of banging gates and wind and waking up in a pool of blood to be confronted by his murdered wife, all blood spattered, telling him that he's chosen, he's special. And I think that is significant for the key to understanding Nick as a character that we will explore much further down the road in season 14. He is not pining for his wife. He just wasn't a good person to start with. And the key to his saying yes wasn't ever, I can give you this happiness with her again, or you can experience peace with her again. It was never about her. It was about him being chosen and special. In the next scene, we scan across several other posters from Supernatural book covers. Again, Route 666 and The Benders. But this isn't Chuck's house anymore. It's Becky's. She's writing Wincest fanfic when she's interrupted by Carver Edlund calling her. She thinks it's a hoax at first, but she clicks connect and Chuck's face appears on her screen and she recognizes him. She's like, oh my God, it's you. Yeah, it is God. It's oh my God, it is you. Chuck says, yeah, it's Carver Edlund. Chuck reached out to her and she believes it's because she's his number one fan and he just rolls with that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you're my number one fan. He doesn't even seem to know who she really is. I mean, he obviously does, but he knows nothing of her fandom activities. That's not why he's calling her. She's just the right person for this job because she will believe him. Chuck tells her he needs her to get a message to Sam and Dean. And she starts rolling her eyes like, um, they're fictional characters. I know that. Are you just mocking me? Chuck has to tell her, Becky, it's all real. And then she gets really excited. Like, I knew it! But she still can't really separate fiction from reality. She still sees it like as a work of fiction that's somehow happening in reality, but doesn't acknowledge the reality portion of it and still treats it like it's a work of fiction. They're researching as best they can. Dean's mostly just watching TV, watching more gloom and doom news reports and reporters trying to come up with explanations for all these bizarre happenings. When there's a knock at the door, it's Becky. The message that Chuck has is that the Michael sword is on Earth. The angels lost it and they don't know what the Michael sword is yet. This is a new concept for them but it's in a castle on a hill made of 42 dogs. And it's just a mystery clue that they have to figure out. This was apparently Chuck's vision and not just some ridiculous quest he's sending Sam and Dean on because it sounded cool in his head or something, which is very Chuck, but is also very Kripke. And she conveys all this, but she talks to Sam and Dean like they were still fictional characters instead of real people. And treats them like that as well. Like, she just puts her hands all over Sam. Even when he asks her to stop, she's just like, no. As if she could create the story herself. And that's what her therapy will be by the time we meet her again in season 15. That she's learned what is hers and what is reality and how to keep those things in perspective. A little later on, we see the Impala pull up in front of the hotel. And it's Bobby. Bobby's been updated about Sam's new superfan and the message from Chuck about the Michael sword. And Dean's like, I think they mean the actual Archangel sword. And Bobby's like, uh, we better hope so. And he pulls out a picture of Michael wielding a sword. They're under the impression that if they can find Michael's sword, since he was the one who originally booted Lucifer into the cage, that they'd be able to repeat the action. They're pouring through lore, trying to figure out what Chuck's clue could possibly mean. And eventually Sam just gets up and he can't contain himself anymore. He's like, Bobby, I'm so sorry. This is all my fault. 
Dean has had enough of this line of chat. He does not want to listen to Sam woe is me about this because he's got negative feelings about everything that's happened as well. He can't just forget all those things that Sam said to his face before all of this went down. Dean tried to stop him and failed. And he's trying not to think about that. He's trying to rebuild some sort of bridge between them by doing what they always do. Push through, find a solution, fix the problem. In Dean's mind, if they fix this, if they kill the devil, if they win again, it doesn't matter that Sam did any of this and then he'll be able to cope with it. But when they still have all this fallout to deal with, he's going to keep his mind on that first. And Sam is just unable to let it go because the guilt is just killing him. But Bobby hadn't even known the full story of what Sam did. Lilith didn't break the final seal. She was the final seal and I killed her and set Lucifer free. Bobby hadn't known that bit. Dean had kept that from him. Even if he told Bobby about Becky the superfan fawning over Sam And Sam was like, no, I have to confess this. I have to get this off my chest to the closest thing I have to a father. Well, because he doesn't consider Dean to fit that role, which he should. Sam is like, I brought all of this on. I didn't listen to you guys trying to stop me. Bobby gets up, walks up to Sam and is like, you're damn right you brought this on. You didn't listen you were reckless and selfish and arrogant. And Sam just starts apologizing. I think Sam wanted somebody to get mad at him. Bobby tells him that if by some miracle they pull this off and stop the apocalypse, I want you to lose my number. This sort of thing doesn't get forgiven. And man, that just crushes Sam. But he accepts that. He knows that's not unfair. And even Dean is standing by watching this happen and feeling two ways about it, but saying nothing. Dean has now seen Bobby, his own personal father figure, tell Sam that, and Dean doesn't feel it's unjustified or out of character for Bobby. Sam's only response is that he's going to go to an old church around the corner and try and see if they have any lore books he can read there. Bobby's like, yeah, you do that. Even after Sam's gone, Dean doesn't say anything to Bobby about it. He's not like, a little harsh there, huh? Or anything. No judgment. If that's how Bobby feels, Dean is going to just do what he can, keep his head down, plow through this, and try and save the world, clean up their own mess as they believe. And neither of them know that Bobby is already possessed by that demon. And it wasn't Bobby saying those things. And I think this is as good a time as any for a brief reminder of that voicemail message that Sam got at the end of the last episode, what he believed was Dean's final thoughts on him and their relationship. You know, you're a monster and everything's done between him. The tone and intent of that message relayed to Sam. And that is also still churning inside of Sam and coloring his beliefs about Dean here. Sam thinks he has a lot more to make up for than he actually did. But Dean has no idea about that, or it might change the way he's reacting to Sam here, too. It never gets mentioned again, but it has to be at least some sort of mental and emotional factor for both of them. Later that night, Dean and Bobby are still looking through books, and Bobby comes up and says, maybe your dad was right about Sam all those years ago, that you'd either have to save him or kill him. And Dean doesn't want to hear this because he failed to save Sam. And he does feel personally responsible for what happened as a result. But what more could he have done? He'd already sacrificed his own soul. And that didn't help. He'd given everything to try and save Sam. Sam had to participate and try and save himself. And he didn't. Bobby then says, maybe we shouldn't have tried so hard to save him. Like, we should have just killed him. Yeah, we weren't strong enough to stop him, so that's on us, but I'm just saying, your dad was right. And that's what finally trips Dean not into being like, Bobby, that's way too harsh, or that's an indictment of us too, especially me, for failing. There's nothing about that. It's just a spark for the next clue. The castle on the hill of 42 dogs, John's storage unit from Bad Day at Blackrock. 
was castle storage on 42 Rover Way. Bobby's confused by this. He's like, wait, so your dad had the Michael sword this whole time? Dean's like, I don't know. What else could Chuck have meant? And oh, the irony. Oh, your dad had the Michael sword the whole time? When we've already been told that apparently John was the one who was first scheduled to break in hell, but it was really all a clammy scrap of bait situation, and John was just on ice until they could get the one they really wanted, who was Dean. Well, this is a fake out, too. John's never had the Michael sword. It was always Dean. Bobby thinks about that for a minute and then's like, yeah, that's good enough for me. And then he punches Dean, sending him flying through a railing. It's clear that Bobby has been possessed by a demon this whole time. So while Sam is off at a nearby church having a woe is me party, thinking that Bobby hates him and Dean is trapped there getting beaten up by a demon. I need to stop and point out for a moment here that Bobby apparently either doesn't have an anti-possession tattoo or he allowed it to be damaged in some way in order to become possessed. And of all the hunters in the world, you would think that Bobby would have found some way to protect himself against demons. He was their demon specialist. That's why they went to him the very first time at the end of season one, because they needed help with a demon. And he was the number one authority on them. So the fact that he was possessed by a demon means pretty much anyone can be even if they are protected as protected can be. Two more demons come in, and one of them walks over, picks up the demon-killing knife, and starts taunting Dean like, I always knew you were a big dumb pain in the ass, but I didn't realize you were so VIP. So word has clearly gotten around the demon telephone tree about Dean being the chosen one to kill the devil. Dean identifies the demon as Meg. Meg informs Dean that they're all grateful to Sam. They're going to get him a fruit basket. But Dean, every demon is in line to take a swing at Dean. And Meg's at the front of the line. She grabs his face and kisses him. And you. But then she puts the demon blade in Bobby's hand. And it's like, you know, your daddy's still awake in there screaming inside. I want to know what it feels like for him to slice the life out of you. What a horrible thing. But of course, the one thing that tends to break possession in the supernatural universe is love. And Bobby feels that for Dean. He cannot kill Dean. He wrestles back control from this demon and stabs himself instead of Dean, killing the demon possessing him and severely injuring himself. Like, man, he should have watched Our Flag Means Death and known exactly where to run himself through so as to not hit anything vital. But apparently he did not. I mean, it was like 13 years before that was made. So anyway, whatever. Point being, he stabbed himself in a bad place. But as soon as Bobby goes down, Dean's able to fight back again. Just as Sam comes in the room to see the chaos ensuing inside and get hit in the face with a telephone. Meg manages to get the better of Sam in a fight, knocking him out like, uh, not so easy without your super special demon powers, is it? But Dean does manage to pull the knife out of Bobby's abdomen, probably doing more harm than good, and stab the demon he was fighting with. So that demon is dead now, and Meg sees that Dean is now only focused on her with the demon knife, and she smokes out before he can kill her too. But she'll be back for that meat suit. She'll have it for the rest of her tenure on the show. I'm also betting that Sam and Dean didn't bother to clean up that motel room and just left the two dead bodies on the floor and all the blood and the broken shit and just collected what they could and needed to their lore books, their own gear, grabbed Bobby and rushed him to the hospital. Meanwhile, back in Delaware, Nick is dealing with the trauma of his murdered wife and child, which seems to have been a recent enough trauma in his life that he's still got things like the baby swing and the crib and the baby's toys. Sam wants to stay with Bobby at the hospital. He realizes that Bobby was possessed now and that maybe there's a chance that he can actually make things up to Bobby. But he cares either way, regardless of even if that was Bobby's true feeling for him. Sam cares about Bobby and he's not going to leave him when he might be dying. 
Dean convinces Sam that they have to go. First off, the nurse is like, the cops are going to have questions for you or whatever. How do you get stabbed? That's not good. They don't want to talk to cops. And second of all, Dean points out, the demons know where the Michael sword is. They have to get to it first. They race to Castle Storage, arm up, expecting the worst. They find multiple dead bodies on the floor across a devil's trap. And as they begin looking around, Zachariah and his minions appear, sneeringly complaining about how Dean told the demons where the Michael sword was. Dean's like, oh, great, the angels are here. Zachariah uses his power to shut the door so they get a little privacy and trap Sam and Dean in here because Zachariah is about to drop the truth on Dean. This was all just a game. They could have grabbed the Michael sword at any time. It was right there the whole time. Zachariah's like, we couldn't find the Michael sword until you just hand delivered it to us because they had their hex bags that were blocking them from angels, right? At least that's what I have to assume is the reason that Zachariah couldn't find Dean. Dean's like, uh, we don't have it. Zachariah rolls his eyes and is like, it's you, Chucklehead. You're the Michael sword. You're his weapon, his vessel. And we get some more sneering on Zachariah, like you thought you could actually kill Lucifer. You're just a human and various other insults. And a lot of people built their theory that Dean is actually an angel, not just an angel vessel, when he eventually kills Zachariah. I mean, Dean kills a number of angels over the years, going all the way back even to Uriel's proclamation last season that only an angel can kill another angel. And now Zachariah saying, what, you thought you, a human, could kill Lucifer? You know, people tied this mentally together, and unfortunately, they tied themselves in knots that weren't correct, and then couldn't get that shoe off. Anyway, it's just Zachariah's sneering derision for all things human. It's not any statement against Dean's ability to actually fight the fight or to actually kill Lucifer. You don't need to be an angel to do that. You just Well, you do need to be an angel to use the Archangel Blade, which could kill Lucifer, because standard angel blades won't do it. That's a much later plot development. They don't even know an Archangel Blade exists yet. So it's moot anyway. But you don't need to be an angel to kill another angel. You just need an angelic weapon, which for some reason in this season, every angel seems to have when no angel seemed to have one before. But we'll get to that in just a minute. Dean's like, yeah, no, I'm going to pass on that. I'm not going to be an angel condom. Forget it. And Zachariah's like, ah, joking, always joking. As if Dean's joking about this. No, he is not surrendering his free will to say yes to an angel. That is not happening. So Zachariah takes extreme measures. He points his finger like a gun and then moves it down towards Sam's leg. And it shoots Sam in the leg. Zachariah is done playing games. He's like, the war has begun and we don't have our general. Michael is now going to take his vessel and finish this war. And Dean's like, no. And Zachariah cannot comprehend human free will. He cannot comprehend that Dean wouldn't just bend to his will and do his bidding. Even if he swore obedience, Dean is like, fuck you, no. Zachariah lied about the terms and conditions of this contract. Dean considers it null and void. They quibble about how many humans will die if Dean allows himself to become a vessel and let him fight Lucifer. How many humans die? Millions. Zachariah says, yeah, less than would die if Lucifer just is allowed to burn the planet alive. All of them would die. And Dean's putting pieces together. He's like, There's a reason you're trying to manipulate me into this. I have to actually agree. You need consent. Dean's already suggesting there must be another way. And Zachariah is adamant that there is no other way. That Michael must fight this battle, must defeat the adversary, because it is written. He's all in for this prophecy and the story being exactly as he expects it to be. But Dean's going to be a pain in his ass. And this will be a source of guilt for Dean. Zachariah makes him an offer. Your friend Bobby, he's gravely injured. If you say yes, we'll heal him. If you say no, Bobby will never walk again. 
We all wonder how an, a wound to the abdomen could have caused Bobby's paralysis that he struggles with, with mo- for most of the season. It wasn't the wound. It was this. It was Dean refusing to say yes. They made Bobby paralyzed as part of Dean's punishment. And as horrible as Dean feels about it, he still says no. When that doesn't work, he gives Dean stage four stomach cancer and Dean doubles over and falls to the ground. What a way to secure a yes. Make it so that otherwise he dies and Dean still says no. He'd rather die right there on the spot. So then Zachariah removes Sam's lungs and it's like, okay, we'll see how long this lasts. Zachariah's like, you're going to say yes, Dean. And Dean's just like, just kill us. Zachariah's like, oh no, I'm just getting started. He's prepared to torture Dean as long as it takes to get that yes. But then there's a bright light behind him and Zachariah turns and it's Cass killing an angel, one of Zachariah's minions. He has a brief fight with the other minion and then stabs him with the angel blade as well. And without any further explanation, suddenly Cass just has an angel blade. And that's part of his standard kit now. Even though he had never had one before, didn't even recognize the angel blade wounds in the dead angels in 416 on the head of a pin. And it was sort of implied in that episode that that was a -a one-of-a-kind blade, that not every angel had access to one of these, that it was something dangerous and special. And yet, from this episode forward, pretty much every angel has one all the time and can manifest it at will. They use it as a threat display. It's like their go-to in a fight. They'll at least manifest it, drop it out of their sleeve, pull it out of their coat, at the first hint of a threat, when up to now, they've relied on smiting with magic or other means to disable or destroy attackers and enemies. Now, all of a sudden, everyone's got an angel blade with no explanation and no further insight as to why they spent all of last season apparently not knowing what an angel blade even was. Kripke tried to make it as smooth as possible as a retcon goes, but it sort of makes season four fall apart. It's like, well, why didn't Chuck use this on Samhain? Sam Hain. Why didn't he use it on any attacker that came at them? Why did he feel like they couldn't have a weapon against powerful demons? Why wouldn't he have presented it to Dean even to torture Alistair? They never resorted to it, and now all of a sudden it's their go-to weapon for the rest of the series. And it becomes a symbol of angels in the series, and a symbol of Cass in the series. But it is a retcon through and through, because Kripke needed the angels to have a weapon. Something that would explain why, even when their powers are low, like they're doing to Cass this season, they can still fight. They don't need to smite. They can use this sword. And also, so can anyone else. Just like Chuck, when he needed a better weapon, he invented one. Just plopped it right into the story with no explanation. Just, yeah, I can do that if I want. And just let it go on. And I believe that's what 1420 was sort of mocking when Chuck just came up with the Hammurabi gun on the spot and was just like, because I said it would work, it'll work. That's how it works. If I say all the angels have blades now, all the angels have blades now. The only point where it falls apart in canon is when we flash back to the before times, 1903, when Cass is in his female vessel and dealing with Lily Sunder, and all the angels had angel blades there. I believe I talked about this during On the Head of a Pins podcast. That makes season four the anomaly. Why did season four not have any angel blades? And I mean, we can explain it from the point of view of our universes, Kripke just hadn't thought of it yet, and he really liked Ben Edlund's idea of the sword that Uriel had in that episode, the Blade of Lucifer or whatever, but it's just a standard angel blade, and he wanted to find a way to give angels a weapon, because it would be cool. He wanted to include this as standard equipment for angels, even though he hadn't for all of season four, and now he can, and I'm wondering when they're going to appear in the Winchesters. Are they going to have any evidence of angels being a real thing in the Winchesters? 
because John and Mary both didn't believe that angels were a real thing in supernatural canon until they were told and given evidence of these things being real. So it would be very interesting to me to see them pop up on the Winchesters, but also it would be another reminder that angel blades are a retcon. They did not exist at first, and yet they seem to exist before and after season four. So either it all works together or you have to find a way to explain the lack of continuity there. And my explanation is, for whatever reason, Chuck did not want them to have weapons for season four. And so in story, Chuck was like, we're going to pretend they don't have angel blades because it's going to be a plot point mid-season or in book 16 of the year or whatever. And he wants his story to seem coherent and consistent. But now he needs them all to have weapons again. Either that or something about how Cass was resurrected changed the basic functionality of angels and he came back with the sword and doesn't even know how he got it. But it's never talked about in canon, and it's just left up to us to try and interpret what happened there, or probably, hopefully, on the part of the producers of the show, for us to not even notice and just accept it as if it had always been there. And because of who I am as a person, and because of how I understand the story, I refuse to do that. I refuse to comply. <laughs> like Dean, absolutely refusing to say yes. I'm going to continue to point out the obvious and continue to try and find a coherent, cohesive way to explain all of it. And that's the best I can do, in story and out of story. There you go. Moving on. And Zachariah is appalled, having just witnessed Cass kill two angels, but he's also appalled that Cass is even alive. Because as far as Zachariah knew, Cass was exploded, smited by an archangel. Cass replies with, that's a good question. How did these two end up on that airplane? Poor Dean is still coughing up blood on the floor with stage four stomach cancer, and poor Sam is still unable to breathe because he has no lungs. But that is a good question. Maybe the same person who resurrected Cass put them on that airplane, and it's somebody above your pay grade, Zachariah. All Cass knows is that the angels didn't do it. And he just says, I think we both know who did it. Don't we, Zachariah? Zachariah looks scared. Cass tells him to put these boys back together and go. Cass has rattled Zachariah with the implication that we know is him saying it was probably God who did this because you've defied his will. It's trying to shake Zachariah's faith in his belief in this grand plan that God had left the building and left it all in their hands. And he thinks he's carrying out the prophecy exactly as it was dictated. But if God himself is throwing these wrenches in his plans, first pulling Sam and Dean out of where Lucifer rose and saving them and then resurrecting Cass, in order to stop him from doing whatever he was doing, that's got to shake you just a little bit, at least for now. But Zachariah complies. Sam and Dean get up. They both look kind of shocked that Cass is alive. Cass warns them to be more careful because Lucifer's circling his vessel, and as soon as he takes it, the hex bags won't be enough to protect them anymore. Cass just reaches out and touches both of them on the chest, and they cringe in pain, and Dean's like, what the hell was that? Cass is like an Enochian sigil. Cass didn't brand them with it, as Dean suggested he did. He carved it into their ribs, and it will hide them from every angel in existence, including Lucifer. And, unfortunately for Cass, including Cass. Poor thing's gonna need a cell phone now. It's Sam who finally asked Cass if he was really dead. Cass is like, yes. Dean asks, then how are you back? Cass is not prepared to answer yet. He suspects that it was God, but he's not prepared to tell Sam and Dean that until he knows for sure. So he does what he always does and just flaps off because he doesn't have a better answer. We go back to Nick's where he's in bed at sleep again and his wife's voice wakes him up calling his name. She tells him he's dreaming, but that doesn't mean this isn't real. I'm not your wife. I'm an angel. Lucifer, and he thinks he's having a nightmare or his brain is conjuring this nonsense up. But she persists. I'm here because you're special. 
it's never about Nick truly wanting his family back. He asks Lucifer, if I say yes to you, will you give me back my family? Lucifer's like, I can't do that, but I can get you justice. God did this to us. We can get our righteous revenge, essentially. And that's what convinces Nick to say yes. And because he's special and Lucifer needed him and will give him justice and peace, meaning vengeance against God for having done this to him, taken his family, his baby, who isn't even an image in any of his flashbacks to the baby's murder. You never see the baby. It's not about the baby. It's about the fact that it was taken from him. It's all very egocentric for Nick and probably why he was such a good vessel. He may not have been an evil man before, but he was more than happy to become one. And I just think that's interesting knowing what we won't know for many seasons yet to come. It helps when you think of the character in in this season that gave us so much actual sympathy for the devil. We really did feel for this guy, Nick, the vessel who got taken on this ride, for Lucifer himself in his plight, But it's hard to hold on to that sympathy once you start seeing through the manipulation. The core of Chuck's story, we're not lying to you, we're just eliminating certain truths to manipulate you. Back at the hospital, Bobby is awake. And true to Zachariah's word, the doctors are telling Bobby that he'll never walk again. Zachariah lived up to that part of Dean's refusal to deal. And I think that's also why Cass can't heal Bobby in the next episode. It's above his pay grade, that issue. Sam asks what they're supposed to do now. And Bobby's like, well, save as many people as we can for as long as we can, because we're pretty much boned. It's the apocalypse. Meanwhile, Dean is giving the pep talk. He's like, well, screw them. What if we win? What if we kick them all off the planet? They want to fight. Let them fight somewhere else and wreck some other planet. This one's ours, and we're keeping it for the people. Bobby asks Dean how the hell they're supposed to pull that off, killing the devil, killing Michael too, for that matter, and taking the win themselves. And Dean's like, I don't know. What I do have is a GED and a give em hell attitude, and we're just going to keep plowing through this like we always do. But it does cheer up Bobby and even Sam, even if they think Dean's a little bit nuts for saying so. Dean pats Bobby on the shoulder and is like, you stay on the mend. I'll be back in a little bit. Before they can leave, though, he stops Sam and is like, I know what I said to you, but it wasn't me. I was awake in there and I heard what the demon told you. You've got to know that's not how I feel about you. He tells Sam he's not cutting him out. And Dean looks down like feeling just a smidge guilty for having believed for even a second that Bobby would have cut Sam out because that's kind of how Dean was feeling. He understood where Bobby was coming from, and it wasn't even Bobby. It was a demon. Outside of the hospital, Sam's like, I was thinking maybe we should go after the cult. And Dean's like, what the hell does that matter? Why would we bother to do that? Sam's like, I don't know. We could use it after what you said back there. And Dean cuts him off, and he's like, look, I just said all that for Bobby's sake. I don't actually believe any of this. And Sam finally gets Dean to open up about what's really going on. Dean's like, I tried. I tried, Sammy. I tried to pretend everything was all right. I just can't do it. And it's not about the apocalypse thing. It's the fact that Sam chose the demon over Dean. Sam believed and trusted Ruby over Dean. Sam destroyed himself through that trusting of the demon when Dean was trying to save his life and Dean could not get through to him, couldn't stop him, couldn't convince Sam that he was wrong because Sam didn't trust Dean, didn't believe Dean. He was manipulated into it six ways from Sunday, sure, but Sam refused to listen. He was convinced he was better, smarter, and more capable than Dean, and therefore Dean was irrelevant. And that's what Dean can't forgive. Sam's like, I would take it all back if I could. And Dean's like, yeah, I know. I know how sorry you are. And I know how much you regret it. But it doesn't even matter. Dean's like, you're the one I depended on the most. And it's like, Sam just has no idea everything that Dean has given up for him for his entire life. 
and doesn't factor that into Dean's emotional reaction here. He just feels like Dean's punishing him, just like he felt like Dean wasn't strong enough or smart enough or whatever last season. It's still like a whisper and remnant of that. But it's something that Sam has felt probably most of his life. Like, Dean's just a grunt. You know, he follows dad's orders. He doesn't even have a mind of his own. He's been saying this the whole season, the whole series. This is not new information. He doesn't see Dean's side of the story where Dean sacrificed everything, including his food as a child, including, you know, his own personal safety, putting himself between Sam and John, always stopping their arguments, basically erasing himself in order to keep Sam safe, in order to keep John happy so that they could continue to exist the way they grew up. And then Dean sacrificed his own soul and was willing to spend an eternity in hell if he thought it could save Sam. And that still wasn't enough for Sam to say, yeah, man, I owe you for that. I owe you something big, so I'm going to trust you. No, because the story had to keep happening and Sam got manipulated out of it. And that's what hurts Dean here, that maybe he can never really trust Sam again, because if Sam was willing to betray him over something like this, And look at what happened as a result. How can he ever think that Sam would listen to him again or trust him again? So how can Dean trust Sam? So it's going to be uncomfortable for a while here, folks. And I mean, that's what Sam confesses to at the end of season eight when he's going in his purification before trying to heal a demon to slam the gates of hell, right? He confessed that he always felt like he let Dean down. And yeah, he kind of did in major world-shattering ways like this. And that's what he was trying to remedy in season eight by taking on the trials. He was trying to do something that wouldn't let Dean down. And so undertook them for like all the wrong reasons. But we'll get to that in season eight. Let's worry about season five first. At least Sam is finally beginning to understand this, even if he reacts poorly to it and kind of does the temper tantrum over it a few times before it really starts sinking in. And Sam seems genuinely surprised when Dean's like, I just don't think I can trust you. And it's like, dude, how can you be shocked by that? You spent all of last season lying to his face in ways that literally destroyed the world. And yet you're upset that Dean can't trust you now? Like, what? Dude, seriously, you spent 22 episodes proving yourself untrustworthy. Yes, the demon blood was a factor, but like, you chose to keep going back to it. You chose to keep taking Ruby's side. You chose to hide the truth from Dean and just believed that you were the better person who was the only one who could actually do the thing. Because that was the lie you were told. You're special, Sam. I need you to say yes. That's exactly what Lucifer just lured Nick in with. You're special. You're the only one who can help me. You're the only one who can do this. Dean is wrong. Everybody else is wrong. We're the only ones who are on the righteous path here. We're going to get justice and peace. Big lies. Always, every time in this show, if someone's promising you peace, it's a bad situation. But that's where we start season five. Totally understandable reactions from everybody. Lots of stuff going on. Apocalypse in full swing. The world having zero explanation for the continuing horrors that are sweeping the planet. And Sam and Dean are on the outs. Though Sam bringing up the cult here plants a seed, a seed that Dean will carry through a vision planted in his head by Zachariah, right through abandon all hope when they finally do get their hands on the cult, only to find out it does nothing to Lucifer and wasn't their saving grace, because of course not, because no weapon that Chuck wants to be useless against a particular being is going to help them. If Chuck decides it's useless, it's useless. If Kripke decides it's useless, it's useless. Kripke decides everybody suddenly has one, everybody will have one. That's the way the story works. And none of this was in Kripke's original plan. And if Chuck is his in-story avatar, then none of this was really in Chuck's original plan either. Or was it? Or was it just all retconned after the fact? 
Or was he sort of just had the plan and kind of wasn't expecting it to go off exactly the way it did? Because now all of his characters are self-aware and have free will and understand that they're literally in a book, (laughs) literally in a story, and can change course based on that information and have the free will to say, no, I don't want to play your role. That's going to become a theme throughout the season. So it's no wonder that it comes back to become one of the final themes of the entire series. But I still have my migraine. And so we're going to talk about all of that starting again next week when we talk about season five, episode two. Good God, y'all. War. What is it good for? Don't you know? Absolutely nothing. Sam and Dean get to face their first horsemen of the apocalypse. But when you've got manufactured bad feelings from an entity who thrives and exists to cause those specific bad feelings, war, aggression, violence, it probably is not going to do anything good for Sam and Dean's troubled relationship issues. Anyway, we'll get back to that next week. But until then, you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter at MittensMorgul or at SPNGeorge. You can find me on Discord at Mittens hashtag 4865, or you can email me at MittensMorgul at gmail.com, and I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon. Yeah, day, uh, day two of migraine. Not good. I'm actually shocked that I got through that. I d- did like half the episode with my eyes closed, so <laughs> hopefully it's uh, even remotely coherent. I guess I'm about to find out if I can stand having headphones on to edit. So, anyway, it's going to be a tough week for me. Everybody have a good thought. Have a good one, everyone. <laughs>